Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. For tobacco harm reduction to be successful, there are two factors that must be maximized, access and choice. All the contentious issues around safer nicotine products boil down to these two factors. Let's use vaping as an example. Choice means a wide variety of devices, satisfying nicotine levels, and of course, a plethora of flavors while access means not banned, available for legal purchase, easily accessible via retail or online, and cost-effective for the average consumer. A disparity in access or choice of safer nicotine products creates inequity that's exacerbated when a population is disadvantaged and vulnerable. Joining us today to talk about vaping, public health, and vulnerable populations is Dr. Cheryl Olson, a health and behavior researcher who holds a Doctor of Science degree in health and social behavior from the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Olson served as a faculty member of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School for 15 years and as an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. She also has extensive experience with smoking cessation and tobacco harm reduction. Dr. Olson, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Earlier this year, we spoke with Michael Stoney from the Scottish Prison Service in Scotland's smoke-free prison program and how they use vaping to mitigate the impact of banning combustible tobacco. I cannot help but think about the United States. Let me ask you, have many prisons in the U.S. gone smoke-free? It depends on what you mean by smoke-free. There, uh, The federal prison system run by the, you know, the, the national government, they're, they're all technically smoke-free prisons. And at the state level, it's a mishmash all over the place. When you look at what do they mean by that, sometimes that's nothing indoors, certain things allowed or outdoors. Uh, it, and of course, one of the things that I learned in the research that I did and reviewing the literature is that there really aren't any smoke-free prisons. There are smoke-free policies, but it's really a choice between uh, listen, what it kind of boils down to is do you provide them with alternative products that they will find acceptable, or do you have a, a virulent contraband problem? Yeah, and I guess that is the big issue. So, I mean, just top line, there's nothing that stands out in the U.S. as a successful smoke-free prison. I'm sure it would depend on who you ask, but my, uh, for example, the state of Mississippi in 2021, uh, they'd had a smoke-free policy for decades, and they started selling tobacco and cigarettes in the, you know, legally in the prisons again, because they said contraband had gotten so out of control, they were estimating uh, value in the millions. And these guards, frankly, are paid, you know, a, a pretty paltry sum. And so, and if you're, if a cigarette is going for, I've heard, you know, uh, five bucks a cigarette, you know, a hundred bucks a pack. Um, this isn't me getting a second hand. But it's obviously Japan would be very, you know, smuggling would be very hard to resist in these sorts of situations. Before we dive deeper into this issue, Dr. Olson, please share with our audience a bit about your background and what brought you to working on smoking cessation and tobacco harm reduction. Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, I have a, a doctorate in public health, health and behavior is my area. And I've if you look me up online, a lot of my stuff is about video game violence. I did um, a lot of research on the effect of violent video, video game content on teenagers. But I got into this. Um, I did some research for the state of California years ago on the, when they were transitioning to smoke-free bars. I've done. I've got several publications from that era. And then 
I was uh, asked um, around 2005 to work with Philip Morris USA on their Quit Assist project. And I thought better I should do this than, you know, and who's skeptical about working with a tobacco company to say the least at the time, than somebody who will just say, sure, no problem. And uh, we did uh, some very successful work getting these Quit Assist guidebooks into the hands of hundreds of thousands of people and quit smoking brochures for teenagers, for things for parents, uh, stapled into ma major magazines. I also, um, in recent years, I guess about se maybe six or seven years ago, I got re-involved. Re I see a lot of parallels between the video game violence research I did and tobacco and tobacco harm reduction today. Just with video game violence, there was this, what you might call a moral panic over, oh my gosh, video games are turning our kids violent and aggressive. They're causing school shootings. That doesn't seem to be the case, by the way. But I saw with youth vaping, hey, you know, certainly we don't want young people to be using these products. But also, if you look at the data, it's the adults who need these sorts of products. There's a stagnant level of smoking, as we'll get into more, I think, among low-income people and disadvantaged people. If you look at the latest data, uh, people on Medicaid, it's just not budging. It's around 28% and has been for years. And we need to get these folks off this very dangerous product and save their lives. Um, and so the grayness, I think, and the controversy of the area, just like the video game violence that attracted me, uh, that is, uh, and people having very narrow, rigid views that aren't always in touch with the reality of the data that interested me. And I wanted to see if I could try to get people to talk to each other and come together to save lives. Is there some form of predilection that uh, social scientists have for moral panics? I do see it happen a fair amount. Um, I think there's something about America in particular that seems to lend itself to panics over, if you look historically, I mean, one of the things, uh, my husband and I wrote a book about our video game research called Grand Theft Childhood. And we covered the research on things like moral panics in the 1920s over gangster films and how they thought that showing how to do crimes in a movie would literally teach young people and all those ignorant masses of immigrants how to commit crimes. And that's what led to some of the first uh, Co, you know, you know what became movie ratings today, and then in the fifties, comic books. They thought that um, Batman and Robin were a gay couple, and that uh, juvenile delinquents would be created by all these crime and horror comic books. Yeah, uh, and, and we see this sort of thing happening over and over. Panics over, in this case, I'm talking about media, but it can also be there was a panic over a chemical called ALR and apples. Um, there was panics over so many things, and I do think that. Um, we often look for easy answers and our politicians, frankly, are looking for something easy they can point to, to say, aha, I'll protect your children from this menace. And I think vaping to some extent came, came under that as well. And people weren't looking closely at what is the actual danger? I mean, I'm much more worried about just briefly about youth drinking because that can kill, kill a kid today, you know, whether they get drunk drive or they fall out a window or they have alcohol poisoning. Vaping is, you know, the risk of that is going to be a long, you know, it's going to take years to show up. And I, if I had a teenager today, my son is in his thirties, but if he were, I caught him with a vape device today, I'd be talking to him about it, but I'd be much more relieved than if he were drinking or smoking cigarettes or doing almost any of the other substances. 
Dr. Olson, you also have experience working with regulators, and you briefly mentioned industry. I know that you're an advisor at McKinney Regulatory Science Advisors. Quickly, you know, what do you do there? Willie McKinney used to work at some of the big companies like Altry and Jewel as a toxicologist and a VP of regulatory affairs and so on. Interesting guy. He spent his whole career in industry on tobacco harm reduction from the time he was a, uh, came out of grad school. He had an advisor who said you can do more good from the inside. And I like working with McKinney uh, regulatory science advisors because it's sort of an umbrella group of consultants who choose to come together to work on projects that we couldn't easily do by ourselves. And I've done some really interesting work with them. I'm currently working on a, a um, qualitative study that I'm writing up this week on a project, a vape, a vape product that's mostly used by people in their 60s and 70s which is a disadvantaged group that has a lot of, I mean, they're at risk of imminent health problems and deaths from continuing to smoke. And often folks have been doing it for decades. And I'll be presenting, I hope, results of, of that study, you know, late in the year. But uh, I like, we're, I've had a chance to study a lot of what you might consider vulnerable populations and people who are really at risk if they don't transition off cigarettes. And that's where I find it very rewarding and exciting to work. Dr. Olson, you recently delivered a presentation at the 75th Tobacco Science Research Conference titled, Where Cigarettes Serve as Currency, Can Vaping Be Better? And it addresses reducing harm for people in custody. Let me ask you, are there more smokers in uh, the incarcerated population in the U.S. than, say, out? Absolutely. Uh, smoking is, I mean, that's, it's, it's hard to find a good estimate but it, it varies from, I've seen two to four times more. And in the surveys that we did, it looked like it was, you know, somewhere around 70, 80% or more of people who are incarcerated are smoking. And most, actually the majority seem to use some form, often multiple forms of tobacco. I just saw an article uh, on uh, vaping and smoking in English prisons, and they mentioned a five, up to five times higher rate of cigarette use uh, in that population. So internationally, you're seeing much higher rates of smoking among people in custody. So are the incarcerated considered a vulnerable population? And if so, why? Yeah, it, people in public health usually look at this in several ways. I mean, one is these are folks who have disproportionately their, their less educated uh, lower income, often have a lot of history of trauma and, you know, difficulty in their lives. They also are people under current tremendous stress in the environment that they're in. And then also, historically speaking, if, if you're ever going to do research on prisoners, the work, the studies that, that we did uh, for McKinney, uh, which were for an FDA uh, pre-market tobacco application process for someone, we, we worked with people who were, uh, had, had been released from prison within the last couple of years, because to do studies of people who are currently incarcerated, you need to go through a lot of hoops, a lot of institutional review boards, and rightly so, because these are folks who, you know, they can't say no. I mean, their lives are tightly controlled. And even if it's a volunteer thing, are they really volunteering? And there, there's a lot of history of abuse of these sorts of things. Dr. Olson, isn't another reason why smoking is still have a lot of prevalence, uh, at least with the incarcerated, is that they've got substance use disorder there's a lot of related alcohol and psychoactive drug use. Absolutely. The, I know in the U.S., the government estimates were that uh, maybe almost half of people newly entering prison or jail 
have could be diagnosed with a substance use disorder, rampant substance use, you know, often to address, you know, the trauma and stress, you know, the things we discussed. And there was just a new article in uh, that came out in the journal Health Affairs, um, which I will I will hold up here for those nerds. And uh, it's it's uh, called the, a widening divide cigarette smoking trends among people with substance use disorder and criminal legal involvement. And it's talking about how looking at U.S. national surveys that uh, smoking rates have gone down, you know, between nine and 10 per- percentage points for people with substance use disorders, you know, over the last decade or so. But for people with criminal legal involvement, stagnant smoking rates absolutely stuck in these you know, national surveys. And so we see that, uh, you know, this is a this the population of people in custody is a you know they're stubbornly high tobacco use and it's just it's just not getting any better. The things that people have been trying, you know, they've been um, back in the eighties. You know, they had very few smoke free policies. More and more places are rolling them out, but they're not getting rid of the smoking. They're getting they're basically creating contraband problems. Dr. Olson, tell us more about the challenges of smoke-free policies in prison. You already mentioned contraband, which, of course, generally means that tobacco products are used as currency in prison. But you also mentioned in some of your presentation materials something called a vulture. What are vultures? I've read research reports and investigator reports, at least for the U.S. In some prisons, the term vulture applies to a person who will follow around a guard who had legal access to chewing tobacco, which the prisoners did not have. And they would, when the guards spit out the used chewing tobacco outside on the ground, this vulture would rush up with maybe a playing card and a little you know, sweeper or something, sweep up that used chewing tobacco, dry it out, wrap it in you know, a, a, a page from a Bible or toilet paper wrapper, and then they sell that. And supposedly, you know, one, uh, report from a few years back said that they could get you know basically 10 bucks for a wad of used chew and that there'd be competitive competition the people would compete they would fight to get a hold of this wad of disgusting used chewing tobacco that's a vulture and that just shows you how desperate people are in prison to acquire something like this and we did um i know we'll get into more into this in a minute but um i did a survey and a qualitative study and in our phone interviews for the qualitative study uh one of the we we had people verifying this saying yeah I, I'm I'm just actually reading off my screen here to get this right saying that uh, yeah the the officers still walk around chewing tobacco so the yard workers go out and pick it up and roll cigarettes the cops would spit out regular chew and and they turn that into cigarettes I've seen guys pick it up off the ground and rechew it that's how desperate some of these guys are tobacco in jail is basically air he said wow that's amazing well on the outside it's pretty big too I can imagine that uh, look. There's also problems in prison, and this I'd never heard of until I read your materials, with nicotine patches. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, there are studies from a number of countries, including Australia, uh, where you know people, you know, very properly, and when they would institute smoke-free policies, they would give people, you know, alternatives. They would give them nicotine patches or lozenges or other things, and they found in you know mo- this is in multiple published reports that people were taking these nicotine patches, and either they would soak the nicotine out and soak it up into tea leaves, or they would shred the nicotine patches, and they would smoke them. And there are reports of of guards saying, I don't want to go into that cell block because the chemical smell is so bad, it makes my eyes water. 
And there's one report that they were using nicotine, getting the nicotine out of nicotine lozenges, you know, and and, and basically, and, and people have been studying the, the chemistry of this, you know, what harm does it do to you and finding out that as you'd expect, smoking this sort of stuff is probably worse for you than smoking cigarettes. And it's, you know, this, this lovely, well-intended thing of giving people you know, nicotine replacement was backfiring. There's and and I, I've I've seen quotes from incarcerated people saying, you know, they just crave smoking. They want to inhale something. I think it. it I've never been a nicotine user myself. But I understand it just hits the brain differently when you inhale, and that's what they're looking for. So, what were the goals of the study um, around prisons that you did? Right, uh, the study that that we did at McKinney Regulatory Science Advisors was for a company called eSig for Inmate, which is, I think there are just a, there were a number of these products on the market. I think there might just be a couple left that went through the regulatory process in the US to stay on the market. And these products are really interesting for several reasons. They were designed with the input of sheriffs and so on, you know, people who work in prisons to deal with the specific problems that they have. For one thing, it's, if you saw that picture, they don't, they look a little weird. <laughs> the, are clear, clear silicone so that you can't, you know, try to smuggle something in there. They have a very, a very low voltage battery, so you can't explode something. They have tracking barcodes so that prisons can track who they're issued to and who's who returns the empty device. And and they also don't have any metal, so you frankly can't stab somebody with it. One of the things we're looking at is could this product be repurposed for other populations that have they're at risk of you know, um, problems such as an inpatient mental health facility or, um, a, you know, a memory care unit for people with, you know, um, elderly people who might might start fires or otherwise injure themselves, but might have high smoking rates. So that, who knows, this sort of, uh, there's a lot of vulnerable groups out there that could benefit from a specialty product of some kind. Dr. Olson, I know that you will be on a panel titled Inequality of Access, How Do We Achieve a Level Playing Field? at the Global Forum on Nicotine, the annual conference on safer nicotine products and tobacco harm reduction. GFN is coming up again this June from June 21st to the 24th. Let me ask you, why is an event like GFN important? I know for me, I think it's very exciting to have a chance to look at what colleagues are doing internationally to address problems like this. I'm very excited to, to talk with my fellow panelists about this and see how they've approached it philosophically, how their ideas have changed over time and what is going on that I can learn from. I, I, I know being an American, it's it's very frequently um, Americans get blinders on and only look at research that applies to this country just because it's so big and they get a little, get a little provincial. And I think it's very important for us to look at what is working internationally. What can we learn from, you know, just 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 as the the Scottish researchers did when they implemented their smoke-free prison policies, looked around at what what could go wrong, what could go right, and we need to we need to learn more from each other. I unfortunately won't be able to attend in person because I'm taking care of a a family member who is uh, recently out of the hospital, but um, I still want to participate as fully as I can and learn. Dr. Olson, you mentioned that you had done a phone survey, and I know that there was other surveying too as well. So when the study is all said and done, what were the results? It was very interesting. First of all, we found that in the in the of the sample of people who had access to buying this sort of a product in, in while they were incarcerated, uh, especially in the, this product, um, e-cig for inmate in particular, they had access to. 
we found that of the people who had been smoking before they entered prison, over 95% of them tried it. Uh, and of those who tried one, 99% kept on using it, which is just unbelievable. And so they were you know, clearly desperate to, to find something to meet the need. And when we asked them about it, some of them really liked it and waxed about, oh, we like this flavor or this or that. And other ones were just like, I was just going to use whatever. I didn't care what it was. I just needed to, I needed my nicotine fix. We did find that of, you know, of the people who um, had been daily smokers before going into, into prison, um, one in 10 of them were no longer daily smokers after, after using this vaping product in custody. So given the odds here, that's a win. How could a program like this using a product like this be applied across the U.S.? Is that possible? This particular product was being used in the Pennsylvania state prison system and in city and county jails in a number of different states. I think one of the things that we need to do is just raise more awareness. I know that um, the example of Scotland, I think, is a great one to look to because they they really looked at, from what I had read, the, the mistakes that were made internationally, and they tried to implement this um, roll out the smoke-free prisons and rolling in vaping concurrently. And they seem to be the only group that I know of that has documented a reduction in secondhand smoke of about 90%. And they've also documented that they really have a minimal contraband problem. So I think publicizing results like that is one thing. I think also fighting the myths. I mean, when we asked some of the people in the phone interviews and also on the survey, you know, do you think vaping is more, you know, is more hazardous, less hazardous, the same as smoking? You know, a lot of them are talking about saying, we, you know, well, we figured that if it was something they're giving to us it was probably, probably crappy and dangerous, but we didn't care because we needed it. Or they might've said, I, I had heard, someone even came and lectured to us, a couple said that, that vaping was dangerous, but they didn't care because they want it. And we need to, I think, you know, research in, in the rest of the world shows that beliefs that's that vaping is as dangerous or more dangerous than smoking those beliefs are increasing very erroneous beliefs and those are associated with people being reluctant to switch and since you know we the estimates that we've seen we won't know for decades exactly how dangerous obviously vaping is but estimates are it's at least 95 percent less dangerous than smoking and you know these are folks who are, you know, remember, as we discussed, people in, in custody are often, they're coming down off other drugs as well. They're going to use whatever is there. And I think it's unethical for us to not provide them with an alternative that they can use. They've, they've got nothing else to go to.